Okay, so you can be opening up to Book of Ruth, and we'll start be in chapter four today. Um, you know, we've been studying the Book of Ruth the last four weeks, uh, and in this brief study, we've we've talked about well, we we've taken each chapter uh, each week and uh, looked at at what Ruth is all about, her noble choice. I will go. We read about in that first chapter. Remember how. <coughs> Uh, we start, talked about Limelech and his family, him and Naomi, leaving Israel to go to Moab for greener pastures because there was a famine going on. In fact, if you were here for our worship service Sunday, you heard Kyle talking about that and uh, the choices that were made there. And uh, perhaps not so great choice of leaving uh, the, the promised land to go into a pagan country, Moab, a pagan world that didn't honor the true and one and only God, right? And how that probably affected, we're not told directly, but we're probably affected that family to the point that Limelech dies. His two sons marry Moabite women, which was not supposed to be done. We talked about that, but they did, and then the two sons end up dying. And then we read about Naomi deciding to go back to the homeland, right? Deciding to return. Perhaps it's kind of like she had backslid, right? She had left her home, left her, perhaps you might say, her first love, her faith. Uh, and now she was wanting to return. And she tells the, the daughter-in-laws that, uh, that she, can't, she can't promise to take care of them, that they should go back to their homes, to their mothers in Moab. And, of course, they love their mother-in-law, and uh, Orpah does do that. But Ruth says, no, I'm going to go with you. I'm going to follow you wherever you go. I'm going to be buried wherever you're buried. I'm going to follow your God. In other words, she decides to put faith in the one true God. She rejects the idols, the gods of Moab, the gods of the pagan world, and she decides to follow the one true God. And then we see in the second chapter how Ruth is allowed to glean, allowed to follow those in the fields, to gather up the, the barley, the the grain for her and Naomi to be able to uh, have sustenance, be able to live on it, and how she ends up in a man named Boaz's field, right? And Boaz notices her, and he says, who is this woman? And he's told about her virtue by the workers, and he kind of takes interest in her and allows her to come to the table with everyone to eat and, and says, allow her to get a little more grain when she's in the field gleaning, right? And, and uh, allow her to have a little special extra there to take home to Naomi and how she does that. She's blessed that way. And then last week we read about Ruth's tender plea. Take your maidservant and how Naomi kind of schemed a little bit, right? Kind of did a little matchmaking there and has a plan to have Ruth go to, to the threshing floor where she knew that Boaz would be after working all day and eating and sleeping he, uh, eating and, and getting his belly full he would be sleeping there and she tells, him, she, she tells her to go there, put on her best garment, make herself up all nice, and put on some fragrances, right? And then go out into the field, just like all you ladies used to do when you were teenagers, right? <clears throat> no. But you know what she's talking about there, right? She's talking about go out there and make yourself attractive to this man. And he tells her to go to his feet while he's sleeping, uncover his feet, and lay at his feet. And, of course, we know the story of Boaz is startled. He wakes up in the middle of the night, and he sees her there, and he says, What are you doing here? What's going on? 
And she tells him, take me as your maidservant. You know, take me under your wing. In other words, she's saying, I want to be your wife. Take me as your wife. And so Boaz, knowing her virtue, not wanting uh, any bad reputation to come from this, tells her, okay. And he makes plans to have her leave after, after daylight and, make, and, and sends her back with six ephahs of barley. So she goes home to Naomi. There's no questions asked. It looks like she's probably just been gleaning the field, perhaps. And he wants her to continue to have that good reputation. Nothing is bad. And we talked about how some scholars try to say, yeah, this, this is a euphemism for immorality. And I don't think that's the case. And we talked about that, right? How the context of the passage doesn't give to that, that this was a very virtuous situation. Nothing bad happened, right? And Boaz is asked by Ruth to take him, to make, him, make, him her, make, make her his wife. And he promises to do that. But we know there was another guy in the way. There was another kinsman, and we talked about that, right? How the next of kin had the right to take care of the widow, right? The next of kin. And Boaz was not the absolute next of kin. There was one in his way. And so he had to make plans to take care of that, and he told Ruth he would do that. And we finished that chapter with Naomi saying, okay, Ruth, don't worry about it. Just be patient. He will take care of it. She knew Boaz's character. She knew who he was. We talked about how Boaz's reputation was great. He was a well-known, wealthy man, but also a highly reputed man in Israel. And uh, Naomi knew that he would take care of the situation. And so she says, just be patient. He'll take care of it. And so today, we're going to get into how that all plays out. In fact, we're going to hear the rest of the story. So let's get right into it. In chapter 4 there, let's start reading. In verse 1, he says, now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the close relative of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, come aside, friend, sit down here. So he came aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. And then he said to the close relative, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, sold a piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. And I thought to inform you, saying, Buy it back in the presence of the inhabitants and the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not redeem it, then tell me, that I may know. For there was no one but you to redeem it, and I am next after you. And he said, I will redeem it. And the boy said, On the day you buy the field from, Naomi, from the hand of Naomi, you must also buy it from Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance. And the close relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I ruin my own inheritance. You redeem my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm anything. One man took off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was a confirmation in Israel. Therefore the close relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself. So he took off his sandal, and Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Kilion's and Malon's from the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, I have acquired as my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brethren and from his position at the gate. You are witnesses this day. 
And all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. The Lord make the woman who is coming to your house like Rachel and Leah, the two who built the house of Israel. And may you prosper in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring which the Lord will give you from this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went in to her. The Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a close relative, and may his name be famous in Israel. And may he be to you a restorer of life, a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons, has borne him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her bosom and became a nurse to him. Also the neighbor woman gave him a name, saying, There is a son born to Naomi, and they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now this is the genealogy of Perez. Perez begot Hezron. Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Amenadab. Amenadab begot Nashon. And Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz. And Boaz begot Obed. Obed begot Jesse. And Jesse begot David. All right. Here we go. So we have Boaz who goes to the town gate where people would go to to make transactions, right? That's how they traveled in and out of the city, right? And business transactions were made there. And there were also be judges and officers there for, for various reasons, but let's read about that. Turn over to Deuteronomy. In fact, you might put a marker in Deuteronomy. We're going to read a few verses in a couple other places too. Deuteronomy 16. And let's see something that's said about all that. Just to remind us if we don't remember. Deuteronomy 16, verse 18. It says, You shall appoint judges and officers in all your gates, which the Lord your God gives you, according to your tribes. And they shall judge the people with just judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality nor take a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. You shall follow what is altogether just, that you may live and inherit the land which the Lord your God is giving you. By the way, does that sound a little bit like the way our justice system works today? Pretty much. Our justice system is basically based on Judas, uh, uh, Israel, Judaism or Judistic law, whatever you want to call it, from old. That's where we base that from. That's where we get that from. Isn't it interesting how what God lays out turns out to probably be the best way, well, not probably, it is the best way to handle things, right? And so that's kind of how we're set up. It's interesting how they are at the gate, put there, and that's where Boaz goes to talk to the elders and the, and the judges who were frequently gathered at the gate and who would serve as witnesses. If you ever read Proverbs 31, the uh, proverb about the virtuous woman, verse uh, uh, 23, talks about her husband goes to the gates and serves as a judge to provide counsel to those who are around. So this was something that the Israelites would do. Go to the gate. They needed to, needed to have some witnesses 
or needed to solve a problem, that's where they headed. So this is where Boaz goes. And he tells, uh, he te he tells or, or actually some translations say, he tells that, about, that the land that Elimelech owns through Naomi is about to be sold. It says in our translation that she sold it, but other translations kind of change that a little bit to make it sound like she's about to sell it. And I think that's correct. It's not necessarily mean that it was already sold. He's about to talk about that. And in her, within her right, she has that right as a poor widow to sell that land. And then Boaz does what? What's he do? Well, he encourages the close relative who he meets at the gate to redeem that land. Or else he says, I'll do it, right? He says, if you don't do it, I'm going to do it. So it was important that the land stay within the family. At first, the close relative is willing to redeem it, and then he refuses it. Look over and uh, let's turn over to Leviticus and read about the land stuff and what, what's important about that. Leviticus 25. And let's see what is said here, particularly around uh, this kind of thing. Leviticus 25, and then look in verse 23. says, The land shall not be so permanently, for the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me. And in all the land of your possessions you, you shall grant redemption of the land. If one of your brethren becomes poor and has sold some of his possession, and if his redeeming relative comes to redeem it, then he may redeem what his brother sold. Or if the man has no one to redeem it, but he himself becomes able to redeem it, then let him count the years since it sell and restore the remainder to the man whom he sold it, that he may return to his possession. But if he's not able to have it restored to himself, then what was sold shall remain in the hand of him who bought it until the year of Jubilee, and in the Jubilee it shall be released, and he shall return to his possession. So the land was that, was, that was what you handed down through your family, right? That was your land through the family. And so once it was sold, once it was widowed, that man's name would be gone completely, right? And so these things were done to preserve that inheritance, preserve that man's, that family's name, that man's name uh, through his descendants. And so what's important here is that has to be done through the next of kin. And when that next of kin buys the land, then any descendants that he passes through that land, that land or the widow become, stays in that dead uh, relative's name, right? So Boaz is wanting to do this, but he knows he has to go past this closer relative first. And at first, the close relative says, yes, I'll do it. But then he talks about Ruth and how that inheritance is going to pass through her name. And maybe he thinks, well, you know what? That's not going to be mine, even though I purchased the land, even though I may go in and take Ruth as a wife, that's not going to be my inheritance, so maybe I don't want to have anything to do with it, right? Maybe I need to let you have it, Boaz. Maybe if you want him that bad, you can have it, right? And so Boaz points out that obligation, and the closer relative sees that perhaps that's not the best situation for him. And so maybe he says, you know, uh, I'm going to take off my sandal and give it to you. We talked last week, and we'll, we can read it again. We talked about uh, the, the, the uh, right for the next of kin to take the wife, right? And if he was not to do that, he was to take off his sandal, and then the house would be marked for the one that had to take off his sandal, right? Because he did not honor that obligation. Apparently, this was something that they also did with land purchases. It, apparently, it says it was something of old, so it was a tradition that was not carried out anymore. Probably had something to do with someone saying, I'm walking around on the land and claiming it. And now he's taking off his sandals saying, I don't want anything to do with that land. That was, I guess, their way of 
negotiating, right? Making a contract for that land. Boaz points out the, the obligation that the, the relative has to Ruth, and he says, uh, nah, I don't want anything to do with it. So you can have her take us off his sandal. Turn back over to Deuteronomy 25, and let's read about that a little bit. <clears throat> 25, verse 5. And what, this we read last week, but I'm going to read it again, just so you remember. When a man is taking a new wife, he shall not go out to war. I'm sorry, I'm in 25. Yeah, that's right. <clears throat> he shall be free at home one year and bring happiness to his wife from whom he is taken. No man shall take the Lord, the from millstone and pledge. For, I'm sorry, I'm in 24. Hold on, man, I knew that one, right? 25. If a brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as his wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn son, which she bears, will succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. But if the man does not want to take his brother's wife, then let his brother's wife go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to raise up a name to his brother in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my brother, a husband's brother. Then the elders of the city shall call him and speak to him. But if he stands firm and says, I do not want to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the presence of the elders, remove his sandal from his foot, spit in his face, and answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who will not build up his brother's house. And his name shall be called in Israel the house of, whom, house of him who had his sandal removed. I always thought that was interesting that they would spit in his face. I mean, if I, if I ever spit in somebody's face, I usually got slapped or punched or something, you know? Or maybe I had taken the principal's office. I don't, I don't think I ever did that, but maybe I did. I don't know. But that's pretty nasty, isn't it? That's pretty, pretty, uh, pretty, pretty nasty deal there. Well, this is done to perpetuate the name uh, that Naomi of Elimelech's uh, family and descendants. So, we're prompting the close relative. He refuses. He's concerned about ruining his own inheritance. Uh, he knew that the land would belong to Elimelech's family, not him in, in reality. And though thus spending, so spending money for that land would not be, hit, for not be his. So he gave the right of redemption to Boaz. What does Boaz do? All right. Well, Boaz states that he is taking the land. He confirms that. He confirmed the removal of the sandal. And then he says, I'm taking the land that Naomi has sold. And uh, it's going to be mine to take. I will perpetuate the name. I will take Ruth as my wife, and I will petition in the name of Imelech through that uh, joining together. And it's witnessed by ten elders and all the people at the gate. They witness what Boaz has done, uh, that he bought it from the hand of Naomi, and then they say, yes, we did it. We saw it to perpetuate the name of the dead. You have purchased Naomi's land, and to maintain Malon's family position, at the gate, who was the descendant of Elimelech, who was Ruth's dead husband. So the people proclaim them as witnesses. Yes, sir. I'm sorry, I missed that. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah. Bill's saying, he says, you imagine purchasing land and say, oh, by the way, a wife comes with it and a mother-in-law. So, a lot of situations, that would not be good news, would it? <laughs> but, it's perpetuated well, and through Boaz's great reputation, his character, this is good. It comes out good, and it comes out to be according to the blessing of God. <laughs> and that's really what we're going to get out here. You know, we talk about the witnesses see it, they see that it's good, Yes, ma'am. What, what did the brother do? Which, I'm sorry, what was that? That that rejected it. Yeah, he could have taken her in as his wife. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> well, that's all over the Old Testament, right? You know, Abraham and everybody. Yeah. Well, that's what they were to do to take men and, and you got to remember you know women at the time a widow could they couldn't work they didn't have a way to sustain the only way they could do it was gleaning and things like that so that was a way to take care of the widow <coughs> but in this situation Boaz honors his commitment it's witnessed by the ten elders and all the people and he purchases the land and uh, but so once he acquires uh, the land and, and Ruth is his wife to perpetuate the name of Malon the family of Malon and to maintain that position in the gate, he is blessed by the people. The people proclaim themselves witnesses, and they bless Ruth and Boaz because of it. And they say some interesting things here, I think. That the Lord make his life, uh, make him like Rachel and Leah. Well, you remember who Rachel and Leah were, right? They were the first wives of who? Jacob, right? And, uh, he loved kind of Rachel, but he got tricked and was given Leah, and he had to work a little longer to get Rachel. And through them we had what? The 12 sons who became the tribes of Israel. Interesting, huh? Then Boaz, they say that Boaz uh, prosper and be famous in Bethlehem, and that his house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. In other words, be continuing in that house of Judah. In other words, being blessed like just like the house of Perez, who was his ancestor. So, with the transaction of the land witnessed and the union as husband and wife blessed by the people, they have a son. And his name is Obed. And he is blessed with the conception, uh, uh, Ruth's conception, and the fertility and barrenness were sometimes attributed to God, right? But that's so, so in that sense, he, uh, she is blessed by God. She's, she becomes pregnant with a child, and he's born and named Obed. And perhaps it's what the writer's implying, that God's acceptance of Boaz and Ruth through this statement. With praise and prayer offered by the women, praise to the Lord for his kindness to Naomi through his daughter-in-law, prayer that the child be a restorer and nourisher to Naomi in her old age. Now remember... In the first chapter, we talked about Naomi, how she went with Elimelech over to Moab, and when she returned, she said, don't call me Naomi, right? Call me Mara. 
Mara meaning bitter because she felt like the Lord had dealt bitterly with her. And perhaps there's some truth in that because they had left the homeland. They had left Israel. They had left the faith. But she was returning. And with that, Ruth returns with her and she was blessed because she returned to her first love. And through that, Ruth is able to uh, help bless her. God blesses her through Ruth. She's nurse, becomes a nurse to the child, and that child becomes a grandfather to King David. And we know the descendant of King David, as we can read in Matthew, right? And who was that? The Lord. Absolutely. So, that's interesting how this one story, we can take a foreigner, a Moabite woman, who served pagan gods, idols, and so forth, but she decides through her love for her mother-in-law, through her love for her, to come and follow her, to go back to Israel, a foreign place, and God blesses her and Naomi and Boaz because of their choices. Interesting, isn't it? You see, our simple choices have a great deal to do with how our life goes, right? And yeah, of course, well, yeah, that makes sense. But ultimately, what really matters? Is it where you worked? Is it where you lived? Is it what sport you played when you were a kid? How much money you made? How good your meals were when you cooked them? How nice a house you had? How nice a car you had? What really matters in the end? That you made the choice to follow the one true God. Kyle kind of talked about that in his lesson last week, making choices. At the beginning of our study, we noted that the book of Ruth serves really two purposes, right? To illustrate how God rewards those who make wise spiritual choices and show steadfast filial loyalty. And to explain how Ruth and Moabitess came to be an ancestor of David and ultimately of the Messiah. A couple other examples of commendable character here. The nobility of Ruth, who is stated here was better than seven sons. Interesting concept, right? Remember seven is kind of that, that number of completeness, one of the numbers of completeness. Having seven sons, I would presume, would mean you had a full family. You were blessed completely, right? And yet they say Ruth was better than that. She was more of a blessing to Naomi than seven sons. And then, of course, the nobility and the character, which we talked about last week of Boaz, right? As an employer and a believer in God's promises. Been talking a lot the last few weeks about God's promises. And how in the world, especially the last few years, you could probably say the last 100, 200 years, the world has turned so far away from God that everything now you see in the news or whatever is about, you know, secularism. Uh, what do we need to do to fix this? Never mentioning God or faith, right? Never mentioning we need to return to our true and only God, our first love. 
That's not mentioned at all. It's all about what can the government do for me? What can we do to help people through the government or give some money to or, or fix this or that? Never mentioning that those things are not really what fixes anything. It's that faith in God. And we have a great example here through the book of Ruth. How Naomi, Ruth, Boaz, and every person that's ever lived on this earth that's a believer have been blessed because of the descendant that came through them. Have you ever thought about it like that? That book right there is in the Bible to show you what God did for you. It's not necessarily about Ruth. It's not necessarily about Naomi, although it is. It's about you. Did you know that? It's showing you that God works to bring those who have faith in him reward. It may not be in this life, but you will have that promise fulfilled in the end. I know we've had a tough week. You've seen some stuff in the news about the shooting in, out west in Texas. And I know if you have little kids, man, that's tough to hear. And I know you probably got some questions if you have little kids about that, right? I cannot imagine what that's like. They said one little boy late... One boy was shot, and another boy laid on top of him, thinking if he just played dead like his, he wouldn't get shot. Bad things happen in this world. And you hear all this stuff about, well, we got to do this to fix it. we got to do that to fix it. we got to do all these things to fix it. Never mentioning God, who created everybody here. And it really irritates me, especially when you're talking about kids. I want to read another story here. Turn over to Genesis 37. We got a little time here. I want to read about a young man who you know about, but I want to read it anyway. Genesis 37, verse 12. Then his brothers went to feed their father's flock in Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers feeding the flock in Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. So he said to him, Here I am. And then he said to him, Please go and see if it is well with your brothers and well with the flocks, and bring back word to me. So he sent him out of the valley of Hebron, and he went to Shechem. Now a certain man found him, and there he was, wandering in the field. And the man asked him, saying, What are you seeking? And so he said, I am seeking my brothers. Please tell me where they are feeding their flocks. And the man said, They have departed from here, for I have heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. And then when they saw him far off, even before he came near them, they inspired against him to kill him. And then they said to one another, Look, this dreamer is coming. Come, therefore, let us now kill him and cast him into some pit, and we shall say, Some wild beast has devoured him. We shall see what become of his dreams. But Reuben heard it, and he delivered him out of the hands and said, Let us not kill him. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, but cast him into this pit, which is in the wilderness, and do not lay a hand on him, that he might deliver him out of their hands and bring him back to his father. So it came to pass, when Joseph had come to his brothers, that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, 
the tunic of many colors that was on him. And then they took him and cast him into a pit. And the pit was empty, and there was no water in it. And they sat down to eat a meal. And then they lifted their eyes and looked, and there was a company of Bishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels, bearing spices, balm, and myrrh, on their way to carry them down to Egypt. So Judah said to his brothers, What profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. And let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh. And his brothers listened. The Midianite traders passed by. So the brothers pulled Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. Evil exists, folks. Evil exists in the world, and it will always exist in this world. Satan is still allowed to troll in this world, and there's always going to be evil. Yeah, you can say, we got to control guns, or we gotta, we got to take care of the mentally ill, or whatever it is. There's always going to be evil. And it shocks you when you hear things like we've heard this week. But ultimately... It's because of a lack of faith. Here we have the brothers of Joseph. Joseph was favored by Jacob, yeah. He got a little special treatment. He got the coat of many colors. The other brothers had to wear rags, probably. They had to go out in the field. He's the young guy, still at home, because he's favored of Jacob because he was Rachel's firstborn. By the way, that same Rachel that's mentioned here in Ruth. And he's thrown into a pit, probably bound, probably can't move, no water. Yes, ma'am. So Martina's point is that the government is set up by God to help take care of people in your right. That, that's not the point I'm getting at, though, here. But So just bear with me. I'll finish up here in a second. But basically what I'm saying is Joseph was thrown in a pit, just put spare because of his brothers couldn't stand him, right? That's evil. Could not stand him. He did get special treatment. Yeah, that's true. But because of evil, what I'm saying is he was treated badly. He was treated awfully. And... We can relate to that a little bit, right? We have things happen to us in this life, right? We have diagnosis that's not good. We have loss of jobs, loss of family members, close friends, right? These things happen. But I want to finish this story. Go over to chapter 42 and see what happens later. 42. 
And it says, when Jacob saw there was grain in Egypt, Jacob said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, indeed, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down to that place and buy for us there that we may live and not die. So Joseph's ten brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, let some calamity befall him. And the sons of Israel went to buy grain among those who journeyed, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land, and it was he who sold all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the earth. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he acted as a stranger and spoke roughly to them. And then he said to them, where do you come from? And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. So Joseph recognized his brothers. <clears throat> Going on down, Joseph said, Then it is, it, is, it is I that spoke to you, saying, You are spies in this manner. You shall be tested by the life of Pharaoh. You shall not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother and let him stay with you. Let him uh, be kept in prison that your words may be tested. And then Joseph said to them, The third day, do this and live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confirmed to your prison house. But you go and carry grain for the famine of your houses, but bring your youngest brother to me. And they did so. Then they said to one another, we are truly guilty concerning our brother, for we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us, and we would not hear. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. They knew what they had done to Joseph, and it was evil. And now they were being punished for it. At least that's what they thought. But we know the rest of the story, right? We know how Joseph was sent into slavery, abandoned, betrayed, had promises broken, right? Prisoned for years, and then somehow he rises up. Somehow he becomes the second in command in Egypt. Somehow he saves the world from famine. Isn't that interesting? And not one time did he forget God. Not one time. He remained faithful forever, even to the point when his brothers came and saw him and realized who he was and recognized him and said, he is going to deal badly with us because we treated him so badly. And then what did he do? He said, bring my brother here. I want to see him. And then he blessed them and gave them food. And then turn over to chapter 50 and see what he says about that. I know we're running out of time. Bear with me. When jo verse 15, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually pay us for all the evil which we did to him. So they sent messengers to Joseph saying, before your father died, he commanded saying, thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin for they did evil to you. Now please forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also went and fell down before his face and they said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. In order to bring it about as it is in this day, to save many people alive. Now therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. All that happened to Joseph in this world he knew it was evil. He was treated badly. But in the end, he knew that it was all for good. When you're treated badly, 
I know it's hard to say what good can come from children being killed, but if you remain faithful, you will get the promise and the reward in the end. Steadfast faithfulness. I urge each and every one of you to keep that. All right. Hope you enjoyed our study of Ruth and a little bit about Joseph there. Time is up.